On today's podcast, I'm joined by the absolutely incredible Alan Wallace. And Alan is in the middle of a trip into Utah and took time out to record the podcast with me. Unfortunately, my system decided not to use my microphone. However, it did record through the standard microphone built into my computer, which is okay, but not perfect. But the quality of this conversation that you're about to listen to is absolutely phenomenal. And Alan was very gracious to be able to give us a copy of his book to give away as a prize. And it's going to be a phenomenal prize for anybody to be able to get their hands on. So to be in a chance of actually getting a copy of this book, share a pic you've taken at night on Instagram, Twitter or Facebook. And let us know in the caption why you would like to get your hands on Alan's new book, Photographing the Night Sky. Be sure to tag Alan Wallace and the Irish Photography Podcast on your posts. Best of luck, everybody, and I hope you enjoy this fantastic episode. I don't know who you are, but welcome to the Irish Photography Podcast. Sit back, relax, and listen about cameras, gear, settings, stories, and all things photography. Join Darren on Ireland's Best Photography Podcast. Let's go. And you're very welcome to episode 161 of the Irish Photography Podcast. My name is Darren, I'm your host, and I'm delighted to be joined by somebody whose work I have followed for a long, long time in awe. And I'm delighted now to talk to him about not only his work, but also a book that he's just completed. Welcome to the Irish Photography Podcast, Alan Wallace. How are you getting on, man? Absolutely amazing, man. Thank you so much. Yeah, listen, I'm delighted to have you on here. You're uh, on the other side of the world from me at the moment. You're you know, living a nice life, I think, in the middle of the, uh, the US. You're in Utah, is it? I am. I'm currently in Utah. I've always had this idea of once I'd finished the book, I was going to go on a, a solo trip just to relax and unwind and Brilliant. do some photography for myself without vlogging and doing work and all that stuff. And the plan was always New Zealand, Australia, that kind of stuff. But with the pandemic, it was just a nightmare. So yeah, ended yeah. up going for the United States. And I tell you what, I haven't regretted it. Yeah, you know what? I've watched a couple of the videos now, I suppose, and even your stories and such like that. And it's amazing just to see where you've been. And again, you know, a lot of that stuff is kind of bucket list stuff. So you're dead right to go and do it and you know enjoy it. Yeah, it's incredible. Yeah. Tell me, before we get into all the details, in case somebody has been living under a rock, who is... Alan. So I am, a, I call myself a landscape astrophotographer and I'm from uh, close to the Brecon Beacons in South Wales. And so the kind of photography I do is wide angle astrophotography. It's very much the same as landscape photography, but done between sunset and sunrise rather than mm -hmm. the other way around. So mm -hmm. I'm a bit of a the vampire form of a landscape <laughs> photographer, basically. <laughs> and um, for the past few years, I've been sharing my adventures and knowledge on youtube and that's been absolutely amazing to to really connect with the audience to share inspiring videos and to share knowledge about what's in you know the night sky and all that kind mm -hmm. of stuff because mm -hmm. um, a lot more people are getting into it these days well you know what it's always been there but most people are asleep they don't get to see it so <laughs> you know, you're, you're telling the world now that there's another world there after the sun goes down and i mean it's amazing to follow on your journey over the years and just to see the amazing things that you've not only photographed but you teach people as well which is even more fantastic yeah it's the most rewarding thing definitely just you know getting people saying oh thank you for t teaching me about this thing i went to see it and it was incredible and it's just like that's the uh, yeah. that's the big reward of it all 
Yeah, people never knew things existed. And actually, just on a side note, you I presume you saw the recent images released by NASA and the deep deep space uh, shots from the Webb telescope, yeah? I have indeed. They are pretty damn good quality-wise. But I'm, I'm, I'm waiting for that big discovery moment, you know? They didn't quite hit me as hard as the original Hubble Deep Field or mm -hmm. the, the recent image of the black hole, for example. Um, but the, the images that NASA have just released, they are they're ultimately test shots. They're shots that they haven't put much effort into. And despite that, they look absolutely incredible. So it's, yeah. it's getting me excited for what's to come because for undoubtedly this, thing, this telescope is going to discover stuff that we didn't know before or stuff that we haven't seen before. And I think those are going to be the images that really... Have yeah, a good knock your socks off. Yeah, mm. absolutely. And tell me, how did you get started into uh, astrophotography? Um, I suppose growing up in Wales, which is a pretty dark place, and I don't say that metaphorically, I mean it quite literally. <laughs> um, I've always had a fascination with the stars and was quite a curious child. And I think space was that one thing that I couldn't quench my curiosity on because it's, you know, it's almost infinite. Mm -hmm. And... I studied physics and astronomy in high school and in Cardiff University. And so I've always been studying images from, you know, these telescopes. And, and at the time, I never really thought it was a thing that I could do myself. Um, but obviously, then camera technology has become so much more accessible now that even, you know, entry level crop sensor cameras can capture mm -hmm. beautiful images of the Milky Way and the Aurora. So it was 2015. I bought my first camera. I was working. I just got a job after university as a design engineer. So I had a nice bit of money and uh, finally decided to pick up a camera because I was going to Turkey on holiday at the same time as the Perseid meteor shower. Perfect. Like, you know, I, I'm going to photograph that. I'm going to get into this hobby. And um, yeah, it was one of the, the best decisions I ever made. I just fell in love straight away because I'm not only a very technical person. I love engineering. I love maths and science and all that kind of stuff. But... I love being artistic and creative and I've never been able to merge those two worlds together. Like when I was working as an engineer, you're doing things by the numbers. So it's not really that creative. You're doing what the formulas tell you to do. But when I found a camera, I found the one device that I could apply all of my technical skills and knowledge and love of the outdoors in an artistic way. And I could create these artistic pieces that would inspire other people. It was just the amalgamation of, everything i love doing in those two yeah. opposite worlds yeah in an ideal world and then also as well i suppose when you create the image you have something to show for it that match up with all the, you know, the the technical details that are involved in getting that image so i think yeah that's probably exactly. a rewarding thing as well yeah it's amazing and it's 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 nice to create something that you can look back on and that sends you back to those moments and the emotions you were feeling at that time as well so it's I'm not the kind of guy who takes a lot of selfies or photos of myself, so I kind of live through these images that I capture rather than, you know, oh, here's a selfie of me on top of a mountain or whatever. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. And you can feel the temperature when you look at these images. You know the emotions that you were going through in those days. Exactly, yeah. And it brings you right back in relation to it. And that's what I love about photography myself, but also what I love about, you know, video, even for my own YouTube channel. When I'm watching mm -hmm. it, I, I'm taking something which was a 2D scene, of an image but it's a 3d mem memory for me and then when i've got yeah. the video of that i can always remember the footsteps that i'm taking so i imagine it's yeah. the same for you in relation to the video too yeah absolutely i don't re-watch a lot of my videos to be honest but there's every now and then i do sort of dig through my channel I'm like oh god i did that didn't i that was amazing <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's really nice 
And, you know, you mentioned there in relation to you know, going to college and, you know, you've got the mathematical mind, let's just say. Did you learn then from the astrophotography side of things through books, uh, through the medium of books and through encyclopedias and such like that? Um, mainly uh, the Internet, I suppose, is, uh, you know, is such a good free resource of information. Um, when I first got into it, there were a few websites like photographylife.com and uh, a really good website called LonelySpec.com, which was created by another engineer, Ian Norman, mm-hmm. um, teaches a lot of, of the foundation of landscape astrophotography. And then once I'd learned the foundation, it was about learning my own tips and tricks and techniques and just playing about. And, you know, when you first get into photography, you're very experimental. You want to do everything and try everything. And so mm-hmm. I just did that and whittled it down to the stuff that, that was useful, you know. Super. And I think, like you mentioned in relation to, you know, learning and teaching, and I've kind of alluded to it there about your YouTube channel. For anybody who hasn't watched your YouTube channel, what can they expect? What type of learnings can you, that do you provide for people on your YouTube channel? Um, so there are, my goal with YouTube is, there's always two goals in mind. One is that a video needs, to, well, three, let's say. One is that a video either needs to be inspiring, educational, um, or entertaining. So there's a mixture of adventure videos where I'm traveling to another country or I'm out in Wales Mm -hmm. and I'm just going out and doing my own thing and just trying to share something inspirational and entertaining. There's other videos that are sort of tutorials where I'm teaching people certain techniques or editing or, you know, capture techniques. So there's very tutorial based videos. And then there's a monthly video I do called What's in the Night Sky, which I basically explain what's in the night sky for the month ahead. And that's one of the questions I wanted to ask you, because I think that is the best resource for anybody who's interested in astrophotography, because it's current. It's not a case that, you know, I can pick up a book and go, OK, six months time, I got to set a reminder, I got to do that. You every single month, like clockwork, what to expect in the night sky for this month. And I, I love it. I think it's phenomenal. It's got its own hashtag Wittens. Uh, and, you know, anybody wants to search any of the images and stuff like that as well. You actually give people challenges. So. Tell us a bit more about Wittens and how did that whole idea come about? Um, so I think it was mainly from the fact that there's um, what people call a Milky Way season or what I call a Milky Way core season, which is the six months of the year where you can see a particular part of the Milky Way, the best part, the brightest part. And then at the end of Milky Way core season, I found that everyone just stopped doing astrophotography because they were only interested or they only knew about the Milky Way. And so I thought, mm-hmm. what can I do to make people realize that there's other stuff out there to photograph. And so it sort of came from that. And every month I'd explain about the planets and what constellations, maybe the zodiacal light and all of these seasonal things of, of landscape astrophotography, noctilucent clouds. And there's so much out there. And it's just nice every month for people to have, you know, an insight as to what to expect for the month ahead. And then I set a challenge every month. I basically say, look, this month capture images of the planets or this month capture the zodiacal light and I'll give away prizes then for my favorite three uh, which are my presets um, it will now be my book whereas before I was giving away photo view books and then there's a hoodie as well which people can win so mm-hmm. it's a nice fun challenge and I've had some really great feedback of it people love having a challenge or a task or being told what to do rather than having to work out for themselves you know yeah, and you know, I know a few astrophotographers here, and you know, they, every single time I'm out with them, they're referencing to Wittens and what, what Alan say I can do this month and such like that. I mean, <laughs> I, it is really, really inspiring for people too, because like I say, it's current, and you kind of give people the kick up the backside to kind of go, all right, you know what, this has happened this month, let's go do it. 
Yeah, exactly. And especially in a couple of months' time when we get to autumn and, you know, especially in the UK, you go into work in the dark, you leave work in the dark. So it's like you can't go out and do landscape astrophotography. So it's like, hey, there's all of these wonderful things that you can still photograph. Yeah, absolutely. The, the only problem that we have with astrophotography here in Ireland and the UK is the abundance of clouds that we have. And I know well, that's I mean, the, the biggest enemy that we have. It's my... my uh, probably my greatest achievement yet my stupidest decision ever was to decide to be an astrophotographer in wales it's like <laughs> how stupid of a decision that was but i mean it's worked out pretty well but it's like <laughs> yeah the amount, the amount of expletives that i people shout at clouds late at night i know yourself is included in that too you know? <laughs> yeah amazing. do you know what it it just makes it so much sweeter when you do have clear skies you know it's you know, if, you, if you're in the country where the skies are clear every night, you don't have that that risk or that anticipation of, oh, my God, it might be might be clear, it might be cloudy tonight. And then you go out and when it is clear, you're like, oh, this is amazing. So yeah. it just goes towards making it, you know, a lot more sweeter. We had yesterday, I think, was it yesterday or the day before? We had the super moon rising and there was a lot of photographers that were out just to capture it. And it mm. just so happened that there was no clouds in the sky except for the area where the moon was. Oh, rising. that always that always happens, mate. Story of my life. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's frustrating. So yeah, I mean, look, you know, we kind of given the background in relation to you know who you are, what you've done, what you have already achieved thus far. So now I want to talk about the the the, the main topic here, and you mentioned it a second ago, which is your book. So mm -hmm. how long, number one, have you wanted to write this book? Um. So I've never really in my life considered the fact, the possibility of becoming an author. It's never been like a, a goal of mine. Okay. But back in uh, back at the end of 2017, I was teetering on the edge of do I quit my job and go full time as a photographer? I'm not really making enough money, but I kind of want more time to put into it. And I want to escape this sort of rat race job. Mm -hmm. And I just gave a talk at the photography show in Birmingham which is like the UK's biggest photography show mm -hmm. and it was quite a big crowd of people I mean I'd done camera clubs in the past but to have like a big hall full of like a hundred or so people and it went really well and I got home from the photography show and I had lots of uh, um, business cards and I was you know sending pitch emails to every company I could possibly imagine just trying to find work and you know playing with the idea of going full-time as a photographer mm -hmm. And one of those emails was to PhotoView, and I'd already been a big fan of PhotoView guidebooks. I'd loved using their books for Snowdonia and the Dolomites. And I basically sent them an email saying, hey, um, how would you like to do a location guidebook for the best places in the UK for astrophotography? And okay. I didn't get many re replies from all of the emails that I sent out after that um, photography show, but Mick from PhotoView got back to me almost immediately and he said, why do the UK? Let's just do the whole world and not restrict our audience. <laughs> and I was like, wow, shit. <laughs> um, okay. <laughs> and I was like, this is way beyond me, but I'm just going to shut up and accept the deal and just sort of see if I can wing it. And wow. um, so it's been since October 2017, so four and a half, just over four and a half years since that original email and we um we bashed out a contract we put together a little contents list and over time the book became more of a how-to book rather than a location guide book okay um and so it ended up yeah becoming a big sort of technical how-to book when you say in relation to the evolution then of the book right um did you 
work on it consistently since the original concept or did you take breaks from it did you cram towards the very very end like how long did it take you in the end to go okay i want to get this monkey off my back i want to get it complete <laughs> so yeah definitely wasn't consistent <laughs> um i very soon realized that you know, in order to write, you have to be in the right mindset. You have to be in the right mood. Mm -hmm. There were weeks where every morning I'd wake up and I'd sit in front of the computer and I just couldn't write a single word. It's just, you just have to be in the mood. You have to be in the zone. And once you get the ball rolling, it's great. And, um, you know, you write a lot. So there was very sporadic moments of hard work, like solid work. And then there were obviously brief moments where I was doing workshops and other stuff was getting in the way. But usually when my calendar freed up a little bit, I could focus on it. And I really had to focus on it because, you know, you're putting in a lot of research first and then you have to write it out. And you kind of have to do that at the same time. Otherwise, it all fizzes away. And mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so, yeah, definitely not consistent and very sort of fluctuating periods of um, working hardcore on it and then not working on it at all. Yeah, and I think you probably get sporadic moments then of inspiration. And you're like, "Wow, geez, okay, I was in flow here," you know. Yeah. And you've 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 written so much that you never intended to write. But when you look back and you're going, "Wow, that's good shit I've written there." <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, that definitely happens. <laughs> and I, I've ordered my copy, and I can't wait to get my hands on it. But I mean, we'll get into some details in a moment uh, in relation to specific areas within the book. But as an overview, what's your kind of elevator pitch for the book? What can people expect for it? So I grew up without sort of tablets and smartphones and I used to love encyclopedias. I loved that you could flip open a page and just learn something random or, you know, if you needed to learn something specific, you dive into the contents and find what you're looking for. And, um, you know, I used to stay with my grandmother's every weekend and we'd play games with the encyclopedias and mm -hmm. I just loved the, the amazing graphics and the, the images that kind of explain things much better than words ever could. And so, a big inspiration for me was encyclopedias. And so I wanted to create the encyclopedic guide to landscape astrophotography. So if you want, you could just flip open a random page and learn something. If you want, you could just flip through the book and see some incredibly inspiring images. Or, um, you know, if, for example, there's a solar eclipse happening in your area, you can pull that book off the shelf and you could turn open to the relevant page. So it's... Um, it starts from very beginner. We talk about the equipment. We talk about the settings for single exposure astrophotography. Then we get deeper into multi-exposure astrophotography. Um, there's a basic guide to astronomy in there. So navigating the night sky, understanding what you're looking at, how to predict where things are going to move. It's a huge chapter called Night Sky Wonders, which covers all of the different things that you can photograph with a basic camera and lens. There's a brief sort of location guide to the best places in the world and all the locations that have certification from the International Dark Sky Association. And uh, at the end, there's a post-processing chapter which will help you get the best out of your images. Wow. Well, you know what? I want to get into some of those in a bit more detail. What I'm going to do here is I'm going to take a very, very quick break and I'll be back after this. Once again, I'd like to thank Alan for kindly putting one of his books up for us to be able to share within the podcast. If you'd like to win a copy of this book, be sure to share a pic that you've taken at night on Instagram, Twitter or Facebook. And let us know in the caption why you'd like to get your hands on Alan's new book, Photographing the Night Sky. Be sure to tag Alan Wallace, A-L-Y-N-W-A-L-L-A-C-E and the Irish Photography Podcast in your posts. 
And you're very welcome back to the Irish Talkie Podcast. So, Alan, thank you very much for giving us the intro in relation to you, like I said, and to the book. I want to kind of go in a bit more detail on some of the items and to pick out some of the nuggets that I think people would be really interested and learn and get benefit from. And that starts, I suppose, even before you get out into the field with your camera. You've got a, a chapter there on planning. Tell us how important planning is and what you kind of go into uh, within the book so people can get the best of what they want when they're going out with the camera. Yeah, so the thing with landscape astrophotography is you're going to be working in the dark <laughs> so you really have to be prepared for that you know you've got to know your way around your camera so that you can use the camera without sort of seeing your camera there's a lot of safety implications as well if you go into a location in the dark you know you you need to know about the safety implications of there might be holes or fences or barbed wire or that kind of stuff um so you need to be wary about that and then there's just the idea that in landscape astrophotography, in landscape photography, sorry, you can see what you're photographing. Mm -hmm. You know, you can go to a location, you can enjoy it, you can feel the mood, but in the dark, you don't really have that freedom. So there's a lot in there about how to scout locations, how to compose your images in the dark. And then when it comes to planning, there's things you need to understand about the twilight times, the three different stages of twilight, what photography can be done during those stages of twilight. What happens once twilight finishes? What happens when the moon is in the sky? How does the phase of the moon change the night sky? Mm -hmm. um, so all of these kind of things that will help you plan a night so that you're not fumbling around in the dark. You know, you go into a location with um, a, an idea in mind, a plan in place. And um, ultimately, in this genre of photography, you are literally predicting the future. You can think, you can find a beautiful composition you work out what direction that composition is facing. Let's say it's facing southeast. And then you can say, oh, hey, the Milky Way is going to be there during March, April and May. And so you wait and you go back in March, April and May and you capture an image that you kind of saw in your mind. You're literally predicting the love future. It. That's what I love yeah. about it. Yeah, love it. And would you recommend somebody to go out during the day as well with their camera and to get their composition nailed down? Because if you go out in the dark, as you say, Okay, guess what? It's dark. So you don't know what's going to be there and something could block the view of where you're hoping that the Milky Way is going to be or whatever astronomical event that you're looking to photograph. So like, to go there during the day is a must, yeah? For me, it's, it's a must, yeah. I mean, in photography, composition is one thing that will separate good photographs from great photographs. And it's very difficult to compose the elements when you can't really see what you're doing. I mean, there are tips and tricks I teach in the book about doing that at night and how you can do that at night. Okay. But ultimately, having the freedom of being able to see is quite crucial. And even now I'm in Utah and I'm going to locations in the daytime, I'll take a lot of reference photos with my iPhone kind of remember where I took them. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I might leave a, a, a particular stone on a path somewhere so I know where I need to leave the path and sort of those kind of things. Yeah, good tip, good tip. And I think you mentioned there a second ago in relation to, you know, gear. Um, it's important that people know how to use their camera. You're not going to go for an astro shoot just after buying a camera the day before mm. and trying to figure it out. So within the book, you go into an, a number of different aspects about not only just the camera, but the, the equipment that you need, the accessories that you need, you know. So tell us a bit about that. Yeah, so the equipment chapter is the first chapter of the book because ultimately if you don't have equipment, you can't photograph the night sky. So the rest True of the story, book is yeah. almost pointless. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but um, yeah, I go into all of the stuff. So um, cameras, what makes a good camera, what's a good budget camera, um, astro-modified cameras, how we can sort of take out filters from the sensor to make them better for astrophotography. We look at lenses, but like 
what makes a good lens for astrophotography. You know, it's not just the focal length and the aperture, mm -hmm. but it's also the aberrations of the, the lens. Like sometimes in astrophotography, cheap lenses are way better than the expensive lenses. Like the Samyang 14 millimeter, which is like 300 pound, is way better than the 1,200 pound Canon 14 mil for astrophotography. Mm -hmm. So we talk about how to how to know what's a good lens for astrophotography, how you can research what's a good lens for astrophotography. We look at filters, we look at tripods, heads, star trackers, mounts for star trackers, Batinov masks, all of these things, and intervalometers, and just all the equipment that you'd need and the extra bits that make your life a lot easier. Absolutely, and it is about making things easier for when you're out in the field. You don't want it to be as complicated as possible. You want it to be as much straightforward as you can be. And again, if you don't know where the buttons are on your camera, try and figure that out in the dark. You know, you haven't got a clue. You haven't got a chance. You know what I mean? So yeah, you do need to know your gear. It is a nightmare. I mean, there's there's actually there's a couple of cameras that have lights on the buttons, which are amazing. I think the Nikon D810 and maybe one of the, um, I think the Pentax K1 also does as well. But other than that, yeah, it's very difficult to see the buttons in your camera. So obviously it does take a bit of time to get that muscle memory. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, it's one of the most frustrating things, especially when you do like a workshop and somebody doesn't know they were on the camera and they're constantly turning their light on and yeah. uh, ru ruining the experience for everybody else. So it's always good to have a play in the daytime, set your camera up and just kind of get used to what buttons are where and what where in relation to your fingers they are and just getting used to that. Yeah, and you mentioned in the book as well something about teaching people to, how to get their base astro settings. So I think that's something which is important. Tell us a bit about that. Yes, this is something I came up with in workshops a while ago. And it's basically in landscape astrophotography, you're out at night and the exposure value of the scene doesn't change that much. Like when you're photographing a sunset, you're constantly changing your settings because the light is changing. Yep. But in landscape astrophotography, A, you're in an environment where the exposure value doesn't change and it's very similar every time. And what was the other one? Ah, and B, you're typically pushing the settings to their limits. You're quite often using the widest aperture and the longest shutter speed that you can possibly use without trailing. And so I basically set up this concept of a base astro settings where in the book we look at aperture, shutter speed, ISO in extreme detail, let's say, way more okay. detail than you ever need. Okay. And I help you establish the best aperture, the best shutter speed and the best ISO for whatever camera and lens that you're using. Wow. The thing I found with a lot of other night photography books is that they say you should shoot at f2.8, 20 seconds, ISO, blah, blah, blah but it has nothing to do with the camera or the lens that that person is using. So the book teaches you about the settings, teaches you the logic of what is a good setting, and then it teaches you a structured way to work out the best settings for your specific camera and lens. And so the base astro settings will be your starting point for the night. And then throughout the book, we look at certain scenarios and situations which would force you to change those settings and why you would change those settings. So it's good to set up the base astro settings on one of the memories of your camera, like memory one or memory two. Mm -hmm. That way you could just set your camera to memory one. You've got your base astro settings dialed in. You're at the best starting point that you could possibly be. And then based on what you're faced with and what you're shooting, you can adjust those settings logically. And even that tip alone is worth getting the book for, because as you say, it's 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 far specific camera that you're using with the lens that you're using, rather than a generic 
approach, which isn't necessarily always going to be the right way as well. So I think there's yeah. huge value, huge value. Exactly. I, and what you find as well is that a lot of professionals who are teaching, they've got the best equipment possible and they're teaching you as if you have the best equipment possible. <laughs> yeah, but that's yeah. not always the case, you know? Yeah, 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 exactly. And, you know, you mentioned there in relation to the different styles of people, even professionals and such like that. Like your level of teaching right now, you explain things in a way that works for somebody who's starting out, somebody who's intermediate, somebody who's pro, and somebody who wants to be pro-pro level, you know, stepping it up another way. But yeah. to, te- to teach that in a book, you, you, you mentioned a second ago, you know, love being able to open an encyclopedia and look at the pictures and stuff like that. So you now have as well have got, um, uh, not animations, but um, uh, illustrations. There you go. Uh, within the book. Tell us a bit about that and how do you go about explaining that through illustration purposes? Um, so to, it is difficult to kind of split it between beginner, intermediate and pro. And so normally when I'm teaching something in the book, I'll start off very basic and I'll give an example in the ISO. I sort of talk about how the ISO is your final control for the brightness of the image. Just use the ISO setting that gives the best final result in terms of brightness for the image. And then I sort of add a note and say like, look, for a lot of you reading the book, this might be as far as you want to read about ISO because shit's about to get technical now. I'm going to go hard and I'm going to explain about the, the amplifier gain inside the camera and all of these different things. So it's you kind of start off basic, explain the basic stuff first, and then get technical such that if somebody, anyone reading to a point will understand it, but then pros and more technically minded people can continue reading. But it's not as if the beginners miss out because I started off quite basic. Mm-hmm. And then we also had a lot of graphic illustrations created, especially for the book by this guy, Simon. He was incredible. Um, he's created these stunning graphics. They just look so good. They explain things so well. You know, there are even times where I'd explain an image to him and he'd, be, he'd say, it'd be far easier if we just did it this way and it'd be easier for people to understand. And I'd be like, well, shit, yeah, he's right. <laughs> On, you know, very technical, spacey things. So it was, it was just an absolute pleasure to work with. And they look so good. And as they say, a picture says a thousand words. You know, you look at a diagram and you could just see things so much better than if you're trying to piece it together from words, you know? Absolutely. I mean, we've all got different learning styles. You know, some people are visual, some people are kinesthetic, some people are auditory. And when you start looking at, I, I can read it, but if I know of an illustration, I'm getting both sides because you can actually uh, uh, teach it to people who have different learning abilities and learning ways. And learning yeah, styles, exactly. You know? yeah. I think from remembering stuff as well, when somebody's trying to remember something, you remember an image a lot better in your head than you do a bunch of words. And so... You know, you kind of cast yourself back to that graphic that you saw and it sticks in your mind a lot better. 100%. And, you know, one of the things I love about uh, astrophotography, and I love when I say I'm not, I don't do it as often as I should do, but um, is looking up at the sky and trying to figure out what everything is within the sky. So you go through how to find stars and constellations and such like that. Tell me, how do you cover that within the book? Yeah, so there's a chapter called Navigating the Night Sky. It basically helps you make sense of of the night sky it's a a crash course in basic astronomy so we talk about you know how earth revolves on its axis how it orbits the sun how that creates the days how that's also responsible for the movement of the stars how stars rise in the east because earth is rotating eastward and you know the stars move across the sky because of earth's rotation and you kind of get an understanding for that and 
not just the northern hemisphere but also the southern hemisphere and also the equator how that changes the movement of things in the night sky then we look at the motion of the planets and where you can expect to find the planets you know when you tell somebody look look planets rise in the east they cross the southern skies and set in the west if you find a bright star that's in the north you know it's not a planet because a planet can't be in the north so little things like this will help you start to piece together what's in the night sky and then we look at the motion of the moon and how that changes over the course of a month and um, talk about the different types of constellations so there's circumpolar constellations which are the constellations that never set they're in the night sky all year round for your location there are the zodiac constellations which the sun passes through which they are the ones that you can only see for sort of half the year and um, you know sort of working out how you can find those and see those and what time of year you can see those and then we talk about things like star hopping where you learn the bright stars and the bright constellations first so i'm sure everybody knows the big dipper the asterism inside the constellation ursa major and then a lot of people know how if you find the big dipper you can find polaris the north star by following the last two stars of the big dipper five times the length and then that gets you to polaris so that's a very well known example of what we call star hopping where you learn the bright stars and you hop to other stars from the bright stars because the stars stay in the same position relative to one another they don't move relative to each other so you know once you learn these patterns you can sort of start bouncing around the sky and working out where you are and what you're looking at class well a simple a slight anecdote on that a buddy of mine jesus this must have been 20 25 years ago uh went to the u.s and came back with a mead telescope and it was a computerized telescope and all you needed to do to look at the night sky was to find the north star and could we find the north yeah. star not a chance <laughs> You had so, one thing to do. <laughs> one job, yeah, one job. I'm mean, going to even do that because oh, I think it, it, even that way you're explaining that there, Alan, is fascinating. You know, star hopping. I mean, effectively, you can become a space traveler from Earth yeah. by knowing. I'm sorry, I've, I've just got an image in my head of you guys like asking the telescope, like, "Where is Polaris? Show me where." It's Polaris. <laughs> well, when I say computerized, right, it had a, a black uh, keypad that fell off, and yeah, yeah, off yeah. And, and you, you keyed in these numbers, but you had to point it to the North Star first, and we hadn't got a clue, so. I'd we never used it. Never used it. Never used it. Um, you cost you me all this money. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. But you look, there's no point in being stupid unless we show it. You know what I mean? So, <laughs> um, you mentioned there about uh, that it's not just the Milky Way that people can photograph. There's a plethora of other things for people to photograph, and you call mm-hmm. it the night sky wonders. Tell us a bit more in relation to night sky wonders, and what's within that chapter of the book. Yeah. So this is the. The, the the meat and bones of the book i think it's like half of the book this chapter it's huge and it basically covers everything that you can find in the night sky and everything that you can photograph with a basic wide angle setup so starts off basic with stars um constellations how you can capture those better using particular filters and and then we move on to things like the planets and the moon um the moon photography bit is great i think a lot of people struggle with that because you know, you see this big, beautiful moon in the sky and then you take a picture of it and it's like this underwhelming blob in your wide angle mm-hmm. image. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of tips and tricks there about how best to photograph the moon, like using the twilight times, what focal length to use, etc., etc. Then we look at lunar eclipses, we look at solar eclipses, we look at the Milky Way, but not just the Milky Way core. We look at all of the regions of the Milky Way that you can see all around the world. 
We look at six different types of Milky Way arch panoramas that you can do, not just the one classic one that everybody does. Mm -hmm. We look at meteor showers, how to photograph meteor showers, all of the different meteor showers throughout the year that you should be photographing. We look at atmospheric things like the Aurora Borealis, Transient luminous, transient luminous events like red sprites and blue jets and gigantic jets that you get above um, huge thunderstorms. Mm -hmm. We look at um, atmospheric phenomenon like the green flash, which is just as the sun sets or just as the moon sets, you get this little green flash on the top rim of the disk of the sun or the moon. Um, we also look at um, nature at night. So there's stuff in there about fireflies and glowworms and bioluminescent wow. plankton and bioluminescent fungi. So it's like it's got this real encyclopedic feel to it. It's um, it, The chapter is an absolute beast. And again, it's like half the book. And wow. in each of those little sections, I'll talk about how the base astro settings will change. So for example, the Aurora Borealis is quite a dynamic thing. It's moving in the night sky. So you have to use a quicker shutter speed to capture the structure and the shapes in it. So there's things like that. And then each um, section in that book has a little cheat sheet that we put together. So you could just take a photograph of it with your smartphone Brilliant. because you, you don't want to be carrying a three kilogram book out into the field. <laughs> so, you know, if you go to photograph the Aurora, you just take a little photograph of this Aurora cheat sheet, and then you can take that with you on your smartphone. Unreal. And that, that in itself, again, that chapter alone, I'm sure is one where it's a resource to go back to find inspiration. You know, what, what do I, what can I do? What can I do this time? What can I do again? And it, as you say, you're not going to carry that book, out into the field but that's a brilliant <laughs> idea just to have that little quick cheat sheet but i'm sure there's going to be people that will bring the book out to the field guaranteed <laughs> <laughs> the bag isn't heavy enough they want to make it heavier you know <laughs> <laughs> um, and you, you mentioned here as well about the aurora borealis and i know that you've kind of worked with a number of other photographers and collaborated with other photographers and i know adrian modi from nightlight films has a couple of images as well i think within the book also and he is somebody who I love, um, you know, looking at his work, and I've had him on the guest in the podcast as well in the past. So tell me, how about working with others um, and in using their images? Because it's not just your images that are in the book. You've got a lot of images as well from other photographers, which I think is phenomenal because you're also sharing the, you know, sharing the love, let's just say, amongst the mm -hmm. other photography community. So tell me, how did those come about? Yeah, so obviously there there were things that I haven't photographed yet, so we kind of had to outsource images, and there were a lot of other photographers that I just wanted to have their images in the book. I wanted to share their work with the world, and I also wanted to have different editing styles in the book rather than just be quite fascist and say, my editing style is the right way, you know? <laughs> <laughs> it's nice to have different editing styles and people can see that there's different ways to edit images and that, you know, you do what you think looks good. That's, you know, I'm not telling you to, to do this. I'm giving you the tools to do what you want to do, basically. Yeah. So yeah. it's been amazing to have so many other photographers and friends have their images in the book and we have over 120 contributors in terms of images wow, wow. Um, which was a shock to me because i didn't realize how many we put together until uh, mick at photo who started complaining about the bill that i'd racked up because i obviously i want to pay everyone <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> and so yeah i mean going back to adrian adrian real good friend of mine he's um He's an atmospheric scientist before a photographer, you know, so his knowledge on the Aurora is almost world leading. Yeah. And, um, you know, having his images in there are incredible. He has some of the best Aurora images out there. 
And once I'd finished my Aurora chapter, I sent it to him for checking and he rightfully tore it to shreds and, you know, ruined my self-esteem. But it was such, it was so important, you know, to have, you know, the, the latest knowledge and make sure it's all, you know, correct and sound. And he was the best person to, uh, to do that. Yeah. And you know what? Like if somebody buys the book, they're not just getting Alan Wallace, they're getting 120 other contributors as well, as you say, in their styles, their areas of their expertise and also their images that they've managed to take too. So I think that was a, a fantastic stroke of an idea to do because it's not just one resource. You're actually, as you say, getting it ratified by others, getting input from others and then the visual images as well are there for people to be in awe. Yeah. And, um, I, I, this is what I love about this genre of photography and just astronomy in general. It's that we're all under the same night sky and, you know, we're all photographing the same thing. You know, Adrian could be in Norway, but we're still photographing the same stars and the same moon. And I, I, that's what I really love about this, this genre of photography is that there's a lot of um, scientific foundation in there and people in the scientific world, they love educating for free. They love sharing knowledge and, improving each other i find in you know in, in landscape photography sometimes it can be quite a competitive world and people don't want to share and they're hiding their locations and they're just yeah, being yeah. really sort Quiet of you know, yeah but in, in in astrophotography people just love sharing i mean we're all sharing the night sky and it's just like i just love that that vibe of being unified under the same night sky you know Absolutely. Um, and I suppose I got you know two final questions for you in relation to the contents within the book. And one is in relation to taking the shots, because um, it's not just one frame. You know, you have to take multiple frames and such like that. So you need to know how to take the multiple frames is the first one. But also, and you mentioned a second ago, the last chapter in the book is post-processing. And post-processing is vital because you could have a, a great raw image or a number of great raw images, but not having the ability to put them together to get the most out of the image in post-processing. I've seen it, I've done it myself, you know, I've sent images to my friends who had done astrophotography and they'll come back and I go, is that my same image? How the <laughs> hell did you get that out of my raw file? So yeah. talk to us a bit about that. Yeah, so the the multi-exposure technique chapter I separated from the, the, the settings and technique because it's good to master that single exposure astrophotography first. Um, I mean, there will be instances in astrophotography where you have to shoot the single exposure, like with the Aurora, for example, you can't use multi-exposure techniques because it's moving yeah. all the time. And yeah. So there's certainly instances where even as a pro, you're kind of forced to use single exposure astrophotography. So it's good to know what the best settings for that will be. But then we move on to multi-exposure techniques where you can capture multiple images to ultimately improve the aesthetic quality of your images. So... You know, you could do something called stacking where you take 10 or 16 exposures of the exact same thing, but you create an average of those 16 images, which helps get rid of the noise. And when you get rid of the noise, the image looks cleaner. It's aesthetically more pleasant to look at and you mm -hmm. get more detail and better colors. And then we talk about using star trackers and how you can blend the sky with the foreground and focus stacking so that the foreground sharp from the front to the back because often in astrophotography you're using wide open apertures which don't have much depth of field so essentially these multi-exposure techniques are ways to get over the limitations of a single exposure and ways to improve the aesthetic quality of your images tenfold mm -hmm. and so 
there's techniques that you need to know in capturing those raw files, but then you also need to know how to put the pieces of the puzzle together. And so we cover that in the post-processing chapter, which obviously does look at editing single exposures at first. And then we look at how um, you can combine those multiple exposures into a single exposure um, or a single image rather mm. and create an image which is clean and beautiful and just... Ah, pops and jumps and you go holy shit look at that <laughs> and it, this sounds to me like there's a hell of a lot within the book and i know we've on a short podcast we can't go into the individual details and somebody you know when they get their hands in the book i know it's going to be a resource that will go back and back and back and back too but um how many pages are in it so it's i think it's five seven six in total oh, and that wow. was the uh, yeah that was the limit that they gave me. Well, they gave me a limit of 560 at first, and I kind of pushed that. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and he said, look, if you go over 576, the binding is not going to last for a decade. You know, it's only going to last a couple of years. So don't go over 576 because we want the longevity of the book, you know. So uh -huh. that was my uh -huh. limit. Wow. And did, like, did you have to leave stuff out? Did you have to leave? Uh, like, is, there, is there room for a part two of the book? Like. <laughs> um, I don't think I've got the appetite for a second book right now, to be honest. <laughs> um, I kind of wanted to just put everything in one book and get it done with because it's been hanging over my head like a black cloud for the past four years. But yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I've I got I did all of the important information first, um, and so nothing like that really took a hit. I suppose what did take the biggest hit was the location guide, um, and that's really funny to me because. I pitched the book as a location guide Originally, to the UK yeah. and the location guide to the UK is now like four pages at most. And two, two of those pages are just pictures. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, we, we, we had to shrink down the location guide, but it's still, I mean, it covers all of the, the, you know, the best places in the world, all of the dark sky reserves, dark sky parks, dark sky places. And we still managed to do the entire world. So we split it up into the continents. Each continent has, and it's a stunning map that was created again by Simon of Little Fire Digital. Um, and he used satellite data from NASA to impose the light pollution onto these maps wow. to be created. And then we added points all over the maps for the different types of places. And wow. each continent has, I think, two double-page spreads of just inspiring images. So it's like, if you're thinking like, oh, where shall I go on holiday for a, a nice Milky Way photography? You could just flip to that chapter and it's just, you know, it's got you know a decent amount of information in there a nice map to look at and you know light pollution on the map as well and then all of those inspiring images you can think oh yeah do you know what that image of the maldives there i wouldn't mind going there and sitting on that lounge chair and photographing the milky way so it's like yeah, yeah it'll be absolutely. really inspiring for planning your next trip yeah and you're you go on your inverted commas family away trip because they're all going to be a bed at night, but you know that you've got some great asteroids you can capture. So I think there'll be a number of new locations come on to the holiday uh, list yeah. because of it. That's that's not a bad second book idea, actually. The, the, the bloke's guide to family-friendly Milky Way holidays. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, right, you're in, uh, in pre-order time right now. Uh, and all pre-order books are going to be signed by yours truly, yeah? Yeah, so all the all the pre-orders are getting signed by me. Um, uh, something I haven't mentioned yet, but I'm going to be filming a bunch of tutorials, hopefully the next week or two, based on the the tutorials that are in the book in text form. I'm going to create them in video form and send those wow. to people as well. Um, wow. 
And then, yes, we're in pre-orders. All the pre-orders are going to be signed. After the pre-orders, you know, I'm probably going to be traveling here, there, and everywhere. So it's going to be impossible for me to sign any orders after the the pre-orders are sorted. So only the pre-orders will be signed. There's 1,000 limited edition hardbacks, um, but the softbacks will be sort of infinite in print run. Wow. Well, you know what? I mean, I'm happy that I got my order in now. So, you know, I'll have one that's been signed. So I'll be... I'll be happy once I get my hands on it. Um, and <laughs> tell me, you know, where can people order their copy? And uh, what's the cost? Must this thing must be like uh, five, six hundred euro based on the actual <laughs> information that you have within it? Yeah, we did think about that, but <laughs> I think the, <laughs> the current economic crisis. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, no, you you can order from my website, which is alanwallacephotography.com. The book is, the softback is at the moment, the pre-order price is 59.95 Great British Pounds. The hardback is 79.99 Great British Pounds. And then there's a bit of, the UK shipping is free, EU shipping is an extra 20 and rest of the world is an extra 30. That's a sad consequence of this book being so big and fat and 3.2 kilos that the postage is quite expensive. Yeah. Yeah, that's unfortunate about the actual the cost of, of, of postage, but more than oh, likely, I mean, you know, it's, it's the worst time. It's been the worst time. I mean, of, of all the four years that I've been writing this book, all of a sudden we're releasing the book after Brexit, after a war breaks out in Ukraine. Yeah. There's a global paper shortage, so we had to win the paper via auction. The price wow. of ink has gone up. The price of postage has gone up. Packaging has gone up. So we, we've tried to keep it as, as you know cheap as possible because I want the book to be in as many hands as possible so absolutely and i mean look the resource that it will be it could be a priceless resource for somebody who's interested in astrophotography be it getting into it already started in it wanting to go up another level wanting to get into the vastness of knowledge that you have in your head because you are as far as i'm concerned you know the best in the knowledge base as a a resource for people already but now to be able to dump that out of your head and put it down in there and then read it at your own pace i mean I love the idea of a book. I have a number of photography books because in a life that we live in right now, which is a fast digital paced life, everything mm-hmm. scrolls past our eyes quicker than we know. And the retention mm-hmm. of that information is very, very limited. Whereas get a book, sit down, have a cup of tea, cup of coffee, have a whiskey, have a beer, and just consume and digest the book at your own pace. And I think that's yeah. what I find people will do. You know, that's why I love books. Yeah. And I mean, there's, there's a lot to be said about printing as well. I mean, in photography, obviously printing is quite an important aspect of it. That's um, not really done as much as it used to be. Everything's very digital now. And so, you know, there's, there's a lot of panoramas that I've taken that I've never shared because you share a panorama on Instagram and it takes up a tiny portion of the screen. But with this book, you've now got a 50 centimeter by 25 centimeter panorama printed on high quality paper and I'm really excited to share those because I just haven't really had the place to share them before. And, you know, a lot of people asking me, like, is it going to be an ebook? And the answer is no. We've specifically laid this book out and prepared it to be printed and felt and touched and smelt and seen, you know? And yeah. the thing with ebooks is that everybody has different laptops and different screens, and you don't know what the images are going to look like on those good screens. Yeah, Whereas point. with a book, everybody sees the images exactly the same way and exactly as we intended them to be seen so that's another really exciting aspect of it being a physical book yeah do you know what everything you're saying there actually rings true to me because it's it's about tactile feeling you know touching 
paper. It has something. It, it has a connection. Whereas it, touching a screen, like I even see it with my own kids, you know, like when they read a book, they're more involved in the book versus the screen. Mm-hmm. It's just blah, 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 back and forth. And as you say, the brightness of the screen could be up too high. It could be down too low. And you could go past something which effectively should wow you and stop you in your tracks. Mm-hmm. But because yeah. you're not looking at it the way you would have intended it, it doesn't have that impact. So, yeah, I fully, fully yeah. agree with you. It's like going back to that concept of an encyclopedia as well. I used to love the fact that you'd remember how deep into the book something was, you know, mm-hmm. you'd kind of think of something and you'd kind of know roughly where it is without having to look at the contents or yeah. you'd get to a certain image and you'd be like, Oh, it was just after this image. And yes. Yeah. That mental map that you create with a physical book, you just don't get with a PDF or an ebook. hundred percent. Plus you don't get the smell. Yeah. Oh man, I can't, I cannot wait to smell that book. I'm not going to yeah. lie. It's going to be the first thing I'm going to do. Yeah. I, I, you mentioned about encyclopedias. I grew up in encyclopedias and encyclopedias that had been passed down and passed down and passed down. Most mm-hmm. of the information was probably no longer current, but I remember, yeah. I, can st- <laughs> I can still remember the smell, you know, and yeah. that's something which brings back memories. Like we discussed a moment ago, the beauty of photography, it brings back a flood of memories, flood of emotions, yeah. flood of feelings. And that's where I think your book is phenomenal. Like I said, I can't wait to get my hands on it. I think you've done a phenomenal job, you know, even explaining it to me here in relation to the amount of work, the passion that you put into it, the blood, the sweat, the tears, the sleepless nights. You have those anyway, so it's not got to do with the (laughs) (laughs) The sleepless days, I should say, for you. (laughs) Um, You mentioned that you're going to be uh, traveling. So you're in Utah at the moment. What's next now? So you're coming back uh, to Wales to do a load of signing, I imagine, yeah? Yeah, I've got to go to Slovenia to sign the European orders first. So me and Mick from PhotoView, um, probably going to do a little bit of rock climbing in Slovenia. He loves nice. rock climbing and he's got me into rock climbing. So he's currently watching over the print process. I'll go meet up with him and sign the, the EU orders because we're shipping those from the EU to avoid the uh, tax and import duties Brexit, and all that. Yeah. Then we, God. And then we're going back to the UK. I'll sign all the UK orders and the rest of the world orders. Um I got to go to Turkey to see some family, got to go to Serbistan to see my girlfriend, and then I'm going to have a massive break in Turkey with my girlfriend. Brilliant. And then back on it next year, a couple of workshops in line. We've got Atacama, Menorca for the photo pills camp, back to Tenerife. Yeah, it's a tough life, man. <laughs> Do you know what? It's a tough life. It's all go, and I think it is something that you, you get the most out of what you put into it, Alan, and I think you have put... Uh, you know your heart and soul into your craft and mm. it's been an absolute pleasure you know talking to you about the book but even I, I can I can feel the energy from you looking at the screen here and hopefully people will to feel the energy as well and the excitement that you have to finally have this book that you wanted to do for so long so it's been phenomenal um to have you on about it i'll put all the links and stuff as well into the show notes and i'll you know use your phrase i'll share the shit out of it on um social media <laughs> and hopefully you know we can get as many people out there to know if they haven't heard of you already but i know most people would have heard of you but i think what you've explained here is even making me salivate waiting for <laughs> to get to the book so yeah it's it's been a phenomenal job it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you buddy it's been an absolute pleasure for me as well thank you so much yeah, and listen, look, uh, if you're ever in Ireland, you know yourself, you know that you've already said at the beginning, you just wrote about it. We have a dark sky reserve here in Kerry, and I think it's the place that you'd love to be able to go exploring. Myself and Bernard would love to take you around the place as well. I know Bernard yeah. would probably do a better job with me because you know, that's what he does. But yeah, it would be great to have you in Ireland someday. Yeah, we can go wander around Ireland in our Crocs. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right, Alan, thank you very, very much for joining. Um, 
and I have a phrase in Ireland which is Irish for bye for now and I end every single podcast with that so until the next time and hopefully I see you in, per- in, in person Shlom Defoe and from me as always good luck in Cleas guys hey guys if you dig what you're hearing why don't you jump over to iTunes Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts give us a 5 star rating and don't forget to share with your friends with all that done we'll see you next week and remember keep shooting